Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Joining us right now, award-winning broadcaster, um, amazing, amazing person. And he's got a book called Driving the Green Book. But this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. We're going to talk about this book, but we're going to talk about this man. Let me welcome to the show for the first time, Mr. Alvin Hall. Hi. Hello, Karen. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for coming through. We were uh, talking a little bit because you travel them uh, highways and byways, and I mean in the skyways, uh, to and from yes. London, where you're you're quite a sensation there. And you speak, uh, you got a literature degree, which, which is, of course, you know, uh, that makes me lean in even more. Uh, you're a broadcaster, which, of course, makes me lean in even more. <laughs> and I was saying the best thing is for me is to not be known facially, and have all of the money, which I think you've done. So I'm going to pick your brain about, I'm going to pick your brain about how you did that. Thank you. It's been a wild ride because a lot of opportunity came to me by chance in the United Kingdom. I was in the photographer's gallery. I met this guy in the gallery who said, after we went out to a pub, you should be on television. I think you should come over and do some on-air tests. And I said, no. And I said, I said, no, Three times, I think, before a friend of mine persuaded me to go over and do the on-air test. And lo and behold, I got a gig on the BBC. My first show, television show on the BBC, Karen, was Alvin Hall's Guide to Successful Investing. My name above the title. Wow. My second show, which was a series, was called Alvin's uh, Investing for All with Alvin Hall. It was about investment clubs in the United Kingdom. And from that show, the landmark series emerged called uh, Your Money or Your Life, in which I was a money doctor who went into families' houses, talks to individuals. It was really about going into their lives to see how they were spending money, what they were doing with money, and then giving them a diet, generally two parts practical budgeting, two parts psychological readjustment, and then coming back six to nine months later to see how they had done with us. And that I went on for five years. I have so many questions. Uh, I feel like you might need to come back already. I'm looking at the clock, uh, Alvin Hall. You know, there's a lot of uh, consternation among some uh, unevolved people about Brits coming over here. And, uh, you know, I remember downtown Julie Brown, Wabba Wabba, you know, and, and then you have like a, a slate of, British actors and y'all don't have a problem with Idris Elba. I don't know why y'all don't have a problem with him, but you got a problem with everybody else, you know, uh, coming here, taking roles, you know, David Yellow and all of this. I, I always thought that if we went over there, it would, it was, was it, it's the same people to me. Like they need us black people everywhere. So like we can't hate on folk. So you crack that market. You're more famous in Great Britain than you are probably in America. Talk about how much they love black people, <laughs> except for Meghan Markle. But you know, <laughs> talk about it. Well, I think it was I didn't try to change myself when I went over there. I just was Alvin Hall. I'm a practical, simple guy who loves talking about money. And I had worked on Wall Street for years at that time. I had done training classes for almost every firm on Wall Street. So I'd been 
used to talking to groups of people about money. And this just added that element of taking that skill I had learned and then applying it to individuals. And the British really embraced me in a way that I had never been embraced in America. It was so heartwarming. I could walk down the street and people would thank me. Or even in the supermarket, I always remember those more than anything else, where people would just ask me questions. And I never changed the person I am. I didn't demand car services. I walked in a neighborhood. I was in the supermarket. People saw me as just a regular guy. And I think that's what uh, made the British really embrace me. And I tried to respect them and give them the latitude to be themselves in the situation without judgment on my part. So you, you're, you're there doing this money thing. And I, you think about the British currency system, but I don't think we think about how interwoven American capitalism is to Great Britain or all European capitalism. It's the same. Is it the same? And this is not a Thrive Thursday, but I'm going to have to have you on to talk just money. Okay. Uh, but is it so? So what, you know, how, how, how did your skills transfer to British, to the British marketplace and being able to, you know, disseminate the information there? What, what was the same and what was different? I'm lucky that I'm a student of money. That's been a lifelong thing with me since I moved to New York City. I never believed that it's fixed. So when I went over, I was just open to all of these new systems. For example, British people don't invest in the stock market like Americans do. They invest in property. They believe that property is solid and you can make money from it. Uh, the British do not believe in uh, having long-term mortgages because the markets are not the same. So people quickly pay off their mortgages because interest rates are not interest payments are not deductible from your taxes the way they are in America. There are no 401k programs in the UK. The system of retirement programs are completely different over there. And remember, they have national health insurance, so you don't have all of these huge health bills that you have in America. It's a very different system, but I was open to learning about it. And because I taught you know, such things as option strategies, municipal bonds, uh, futures in America, I could understand a lot of it because it was similar to other concepts from America that I had in my mind. But in reality, it's quite different. And their attitude toward money is quite different from ours. What do you uh, attribute to, besides, besides being a regular guy that, you know, you're, you're relatable, you don't change up, which I always tell my students, be your authentic self. The world needs you to show up as your authentic self because it, it resonates mm -hmm. with folk. What do you attribute to your success in, in a marketplace, again, that you're not from? You know, you're not from there. You don't have the British accent. You're not even putting on that, uh, you know, that affectation. And you're, you know. <laughs> <laughs> My inner Madonna is staying where it is. <laughs> that that mid-Atlantic British accent that she has. <laughs> hilarious. Hilarious. Oh, I think, I really don't know what it is. I I was at a moment in Britain, in Britain, where my personality, my skill set, and the program that I was involved in, and then helped evolve because it ran for five years on Tuesday nights, uh, just touched the British people at the right moment. Since that time, uh, other people have taken it over and gone to even greater success than I am. There's a guy named Martin Lewis who started something I think called the Money Supermarket. He's a wonderful person and really talks about money in the way that British people understand even better than I did when I was there. 
Uh, he does it so well because he's British. But I had my moment over there and it's still lasting. I still write for uh, some newspapers. Rage for Rose Weekend, I wrote a column for them called My Week until uh, Christmas of this year. And uh, I still go over to the United Kingdom. I've had a wonderful life there. We're talking with Alvin Hall um, from Crawfordville, Florida. One of seven children. Daddy was a farmer and a fisherman. And somehow he ended up getting a BA and a master's and uh, going across the pond to do all of these things. And he has a book called Driving the Green Book. And you reveal in your book that you didn't know anything about this green book until 2015. And I'm like, how's a man from the South? How did you how could you not have heard of this green book? The, the green book. That's because we were poor. Oh, no, let me say it right. We were poor. We couldn't afford the <laughs> O-R in the word at all. <laughs> right. And so we didn't have a car. And therefore, we never drove anywhere. My, when we had to travel to visit my Uncle Louie in Lake City, Florida, it was our uncle's son who, with a panel truck, with a, a wooden thing it built on the truck, and we'd sit in that on benches, and he would drive us to see our Uncle Louie. So we didn't need a green book because my mother never drove, my grandmother never drove, nobody ever drove. So I just never had heard of it. And then I was thumbing through this magazine on probably an American airline flight uh, to the UK. And I saw this Negro motorist green book and I thought, I haven't heard of this. And then when I came back to America, I went to the Schomburg Center and did some preliminary research. And then Karen, by utter happenstance, a guy in Wales in the UK, Jeremy Grange, calls me up and says, um, I have this idea for this program on this book called the Negro Motorist Green Book. Would you be willing to do the show out of the blue? Out of the blue. And of course I said, yes. And that started me on this journey. So first I did a BBC program simply called the Green Book. It is still available on the BBC's website, Radio 4. And it was a journey uh, that Jeremy and I conceived that was through space and time. The space was from Tallahassee, Florida, near where I was born, to Ferguson, Missouri, where the Black Lives Matters movement and the murder of Michael Brown had just occurred. Time was from my past to the current events in Ferguson. Hmm. So it was really a dual journey. That program aired in the BBC and around the world to great uh, acclaim, but never in America. It was never broadcast in America. And this was a really a case of my working hard and creatively to turn lemons into lemonade. Because I kept thinking, how can I bring this idea over here? And then one day I walked into the Museum of Modern Art to see a Jacob Lawrence show about the Great Migration. And there was an infographic at the very beginning of the show showing how the African-American population in various cities had changed and Detroit stood out as one of the largest changes. In 1910, the African-American population was 1.2% of the total population of Detroit. By 1970, it was over 43% of the population because of the great migration. And I looked at that and I thought, that meant that all of these people had to come from the South, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, the Florida Panhandle. And I thought, that's the journey. 
-hmm. those people would have to come back to the South and then their relatives would drive North to visit them in these cities. And those people on the road would have to use the Green Book. That's how this idea came about. Wow. I, listen, I, I love that. And, and so when you were thinking about it, uh, thinking about, OK, how do I bring this from this idea of the Green Book in this sort of historical context? How do you make that then interesting in this in, in, and turn it into a way that you can now tell that story in multiple mediums? Because I know there's a podcast. I know that there's a book. And I know that. How did you flip that and think through how to tell that story in those different ways. I always say that I went to a liberal arts college and one of the advantages of uh, distribution requirements that you had to take economics courses, science courses, sociology courses, literature courses, that you learn different ways of thinking about things. You yeah. learn different ways of packaging information. Yeah. So one of the things I did was to think about what are the various ways I could reimagine this. And, you know, some of this, uh, Drew, depends on a gift. And that's the gift of luck and chance. Mm. When I recorded the podcast series and we did the road trip from Detroit to New Orleans, I had one concept in mind. It was going to be a road trip. But during that trip, we would be sitting with people, talking to them, and I had a rule that we could have no questions in our laps. We could have no list of questions. We had to listen to the people, look them in the eye, and let our questions come organically out of those. I cannot tell you the number of times people would say, I know that you may not have time for this story, but, or ah. I remember such and such, let me tell you that. And it was because we were fully present for them. We were listening to them. Our questions were growing out of theirs. When we finished that road trip and I sat down in this apartment where I'm sitting now and I listened to every one of those interviews, I had something totally different from what I thought I was gonna have. We had stories around themes, stories where the elders shared dark stories. We had stories that were full of humor. So it was easy for me to reimagine Mm -hmm. the whole road trip in this new way to become the podcast. But the podcast has limits, time limits, 23, yeah. 27 minutes. So when I did the book, I said, how can I make the book standalone and complement the podcast, but not repeat it? For one thing, I can add more context. I can explain how Jim Crow came about. I can explain how reconstruction affected all of these things. And I can do it in a way because I've written a lot that won't feel like I'm preaching to you. Yeah. And then my editor, Drew, came up with the most amazing thing. She said, Alvin, why don't you add some of your personal stories? You grew up in segregation in a small town in the South. You were poor. Talk about your own stories and people you may have known who may have traveled. And I did that. And that became this book. You talk a lot about the serendipity and the chance, but all I'm hearing is this curiosity that keeps driving you to, oh, I want to know about that. I'm going to go to the museum. I'm going to play out this in this infographic. I'm going to listen to these stories. Talk about how important that curiosity has been to like your success in all of these amazing endeavors. I think it's one of the key things. I remain open to information and every aspect of my life. I listen to people when I'm there. I'm always gathering information and filtering it through ideas that may be sitting low in my mind, waiting to come up. I'm open 
to almost anything. I do things that some people think are really, really crazy. Like I go to concerts and people say, why are you going to that concert? Well, I have this idea in the back of my mind, or I'll go for a long walk to a part of the city I've never been in because I have an idea. And so I'm just open to it. But you know, I also believe Drew and Karen that luck is with each and every one of us every single day. But sometimes we're just distracted by life, by a bad mood, by bad, by sadness or something. But all of us need to be more fully present to be able to grab luck. It doesn't mean you can always turn that luck into something great, but at least you're working on something that may turn into something that's wonderful. When I turned down that BBC program, uh, I had a job here in New York City designing training programs about the financial markets. I just signed a huge business to become a big client. I really didn't need that. But that opportunity kept knocking, kept knocking. And finally, I said yes. And it changed my life. That's how it comes along. Come on. You have, and I also think we get smarter over time at grabbing the right luck. If you stay open to it, you grab the right luck, the one that you can turn into something positive. Alvin Hall is his name. Uh, Driving the Green Book is the book, but as you can hear, he's so much more than that. Uh, Lovecraft Country. I I loved Lovecraft Country for introducing people the way I loved Watchmen, for introducing people to historic moments and immortalizing them. Uh, With Watchmen, it was uh, definitely what happened to Tulsa Greenwood, uh, Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma, Um, Lovecraft Country also gives us another perspective of what happened in Tulsa through a very personal uh, lens. And it opens with what I think are the depiction of, you know, Victor and Alma Green, who were the founders of the Green Book that you you write about. Courtney B. Vance, of course, played it and and Drew's homegirl, Anjanou Ellis from the great uh, space of Mississippi, uh, played a husband and college graduate. Come on through, yep. Anjanou Ellis, um, one of the best, un- I think, unsung actresses and should win all of the awards, and so, so should Courtney B. Vance, but, and he has. For, for you opening the book, you had to educate yourself. Someone from the South, you never heard of Victor Green and Alma Green or the Green mm-hmm. Book. What did you discover about them in your journey to writing about this, this, this amazing book that mm-hmm. must have saved a lot of lives? Must have yes. saved a lot. What did, did you learn? I, I learned that they were people who they took the experiences that they had on the road driving to Virginia to visit her relatives and thought, how can we get around this? How can we create a, uh, a document, a guide that will help other people avoid the problems, which he called aggravations, on the road as we travel? So he didn't just sort of sit there and stew in it. He, again tried to turn a bad situation and saw that other people experienced it. So he was trying to help someone, help other people. Also, remember, this was the time of the Harlem Renaissance when he was doing this. So it was a place of creative spirit, interesting people all around. Victor worked as a postman in Hackensack, New Jersey, and there were two postal unions, one for black people and one for white people. And Victor was very skillful. He managed to to convince people in both unions to help him gather information about businesses that should be featured in his green book. 
as it then he rolled it out across America, starting in 1938. Every year, another state was added until it covered all of America. Mm -hmm. Just think, he was working out of a place in Harlem. He didn't have a big staff, but he knew how to network. And he knew that if he and Alma and their group of friends who travel mostly in New England had experienced these frustrations, what other parts of the country probably had it worse? Wow. Tell me a story uh, from growing up in your, I won't even call it a small town, you know. It's small. It's it's not even a town. It's a crossroads. 52 people when I was growing up. Did you know all 52? They were all my relatives. (laughs) Everybody, Everybody grew up with directly related to me. So except those people who married into the family and then they were related to me too. Tell us how your mother, I think, saved $50 for you to go to Yale. What what was Uh, that that story? Grandmother. Your grandmother. Yeah. um, So um, integration occurred in the county in 1968. And I went to the white school and I got involved in Project Upward Bound, which was had a wonderful director, a lady named Miss Freddie Grooms. She was the most beautiful black woman I had ever seen in my life. I have never forgotten Mrs. Grooms. I think she's still alive in Tallahassee, Florida. And I went to uh, uh, Florida uh, Project Upward Bound. And then she then recommended me to Dr. Joel Fleischman at a program called Yale Summer High School. And I was accepted to that and went there. And when I left to go home, I remember that day till till the day I died. Um, My mother was not particularly happy that I was leaving home as the eldest son. I was thrilled to be leaving home, but of course in my family, you did not show that. I would say we were like waspy black people. No, we we didn't show feelings at all, but I was so (laughs) thrilled to be leaving. And my grandmother was both hurt and concerned because from the day I was born, I was her child. I was never my mother's child. I was the eldest son my grandmother just loved me absolutely. And when I left, she had in this handkerchief, I still have the handkerchief actually, it had these little three uh, yellow, green, and red little leaves on it in a little tr- a triangle. And then it had uh, green piping all around the edge. And she had rolled up $50 in that handkerchief. She gave it to me. And I kept that money, Karen. Mm-hmm. until I bought my first apartment because I thought she'd approve of that. Buying something else, traveling, she wouldn't have gotten that. But buying my first bit of shelter that I owned, that was mine, she would approve of that. And I used that $50 for that. Wow. 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 Did they? Did she get to see you become this person? don't know what they knew. My mother always said, I raised you to leave my house, not stay in my house. (laughs) And I think my journey when I left home, went to Yale and then went to Bowdoin and the rest of it was sort of unimaginable to them. And when I came back home, I think they were much more concerned that I was the person that they had grown up with, that they knew all their lives rather than this person who had gone on. So I always told them I taught. I said, I teach about finances. And they would go, hmm. 
I never talked very much about when I traveled because uh, when I traveled a lot, if they heard about a plane crash in let's say Thailand, my phone would ring and my grandmother would pick up the phone, well, we're just calling to make sure you're not on that plane in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> so I, then I stopped telling that when I would travel, I just, and so I gradually added my life down to a way that they understood it and kept them comfortable. I didn't need them to go on my journey with me. I didn't need that, but I just wanted them to remain comfortable that I was still the young man that they had raised and launched into the world. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. So I just already asked my producer to bring you back because I want to have a whole conversation with you about money and things. Uh, Alvin Hall, the book driving the green book. Is this, is there a need for a green book today? I asked that question on to everyone along this trip. And the older people said, no, we'll never go back to that. We'll never ever go back to the time that we need a green book. But the young people see it differently. They see it as a way to support black businesses when you travel. So not only do you go to places that would welcome you, but you also are helping to keep dollars in the black community to support places that have your vibe, that have your interests at heart. So as a marketing tool for people who wanna support black businesses across America, many people in different cities across America are starting up publications inspired by Victor Hugo's message in the green book. Wow. I love it. Oh, where are you now? Are you still in London? No, right now I'm in New York. I'm okay. sitting in my apartment in New York watching the sun go down. <laughs> How often do you go back? Um, I haven't been back since COVID. The last time I was there in, was in 19, uh, oh my God, was in 2019. I got back only three days before Ireland and England uh, were put on the lockdown list. And so I'm planning to go back over for the first time in April. But since that time, I've done a documentary on the Tulsa massacre. I have an upcoming documentary to do for the BBC on uh, Diane Arbus. I forget, I've done another one. So I do a lot of work now that's based in America, but is aired on the BBC or BBC World Service. Listen, uh, I, I I love what you're what you're saying about like the how transferable all of this work is and how transferable our stories are. Any sort of last thoughts on on new stories to tell that are just about us and our experience? Yes, I think that one of the things that I've been trying to get an idea off the ground about are these small communities that are still in the South that still live in a particular, almost time warp way where you can see the old South or the old ways of living, but not, but we need to bring it forward. We need to help them see the light, so to well, speak. I, I see the light with you, Alvin Hall. I just told Smith, let's get him back as frequently as possible. You are a, a joy. The book is Driving the Green Book. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.